Jesus loves you so much. He said, I'm not going to allow what you have done. I'm not going to allow your sin and your wrong choices to stand in the way of my having a relationship with you. That's the reason Jesus died on the cross. That's how much he loves you and wants a relationship with you. He was willing to give absolutely everything, not because you're good, not because you deserve it. He did it in spite of you, in spite of me. He did it simply because he chose to love us. That's how much he wants a relationship with you. And he says, just like I want a relationship with you, I want you who choose to follow me to work really hard at having good relationships in your life with other people. Work hard at having good relationships with your family. Work really hard at having good relationships at the church. And in this sermon series, I like my church. We're really talking about relationships because the church is people. And we said last Sunday that Jesus loves the church, and because he does, it's not asking too much for us to like the church. If he loves it, the least you and I can do is like the church. And that means liking the people in the church. Last Sunday we learned that liking the church means we do what's good for it because when you like something, you take care of it. When you like someone, you're good to them. And when you like the people of God, when you like the church of God, you're good to it, you take care of it, you do good things for it. And so we talked about serving the church, serving the people of God, not for what you get out of it, even though serving, like Renee was saying, blesses you and you enjoy it. But the primary motivation for serving is to honor Jesus and for the benefit of the church, for the common good, if you will. But today I want to talk about the importance of working really hard at maintaining relationships with one another and the church. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the person beside you and say, I like you. Go ahead. Did any of you lie? Now look at, look at somebody else. Look at a different one now and say, I like you. We're going to talk about the importance of learning to like one another. Now last Sunday, we asked you to brag on your church by wearing the T-shirts. And we have more T-shirts available. Green ones on the left, blue ones on the, my right. Get them after the service. $5 donation if you have money. If you don't, just get a T-shirt. Take as many as you want. And we asked some of you, wear your shirts and send us some photos. And some of you put them on Facebook and Instagram. And that's some of them. And, and I want to encourage you to keep doing that this week. But learn day after day, week after week, to be a person of faith, to be a person of love, to be a person who's positive, a person who, who learns to love and learns to forgive. So we're going to talk about protecting the unity of the church, working on relationships at home, working on relationships in the church today. So I invite you to take your Bible, if you have it, and open it with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. We'll look at a passage there and also one in Colossians chapter 3. And then let me just say, Relationships are not easy, even in the best of times, okay? Relationships require effort. They require work. This morning, Monisa and I had the television on while we were getting ready, and we listened to a sermon by Andy Stanley and then also one by Charles Stanley. So I'd already heard two sermons by the time I got to church this morning. And uh, during Andy's sermon, he shared something he's talked about in the past, that 20 years ago, he and his father, both preachers, did not have a good relationship. There was a lot of tension between them. Uh, the relationship had broken down, and, and they were having a hard time even talking to one another. And this morning he talked about reaching a point when he was in counseling, getting help 
that he looked at the counselor and he said, When's, when is enough enough? When, when can I say I've done enough and it's okay just to give up on it? And the counselor listened and listened. After a little while, the counselor looked at him and answered his question by saying this. You can give up on your relationship with your father when your heavenly father gives up on his relationship with you. Now think about that. God is not saying to you and me to work on relationships with other people, and that includes at church, because they deserve it. God is not saying to work hard at having unity in the church because everybody is good, everybody is great. God is saying you are to work hard at having healthy relationships, at helping the church be united and together because that's what I've done for you. You are to treat other people the way I treat you. And God says, I haven't loved you and forgiven you and worked at keeping a relationship with you because you were worthy, because you deserved it, because you're good, you're great, you're this, that, or the other. He said, it's simply because I love you. And God expects us to turn around and do the same thing in our relationships with other people. And that includes the church. And when you love the church, you like the church, you're going to protect the unity of the church, and you're going to work at it really, really hard. Now, look at those two verses on the screen. We're going to study those in some detail this morning. Notice what he says in Ephesians 4. Preserve the unity of the Spirit. God is saying in that verse that you and I are to work diligently. We are to endeavor. We are to work hard and enthusiastically at protecting the fellowship, at protecting the unity of the church. Even when it's not easy. And then in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So God is commanding me, God is commanding you, He is commanding us to make unity, fellowship, peace in the church a priority and work diligently at it because that is what He does with us. And he wants us to exemplify that same characteristic. Now, if you have your Bibles and you're looking in Ephesians 4, in this chapter he gives us the theological foundation, if you will, for unity, for oneness, for togetherness. Because in Ephesians 4 in verse 3, after saying, be diligent to preserve the unity of the church and the bond of peace, he says, let me explain it to you. Let me illustrate for you why oneness and unity, togetherness is so important to God. He said in verse 4 of Ephesians 4, there is one body. Now, every local church is a physical, visible expression of the body of Christ, but the truth is God has one people, those who believe in him, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, one body. God doesn't have many churches. He's got one church. We're just a different expression of it, but one body of believers, one church family, if you will, one spirit, one Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 4, just as you were called in one hope, of your calling. The same Holy Spirit that spoke to my heart when I was a teenager and invited me into a relationship with Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that spoke to your heart and called you into a relationship with Jesus. The same Holy Spirit that came into my life when I said yes to Jesus is the one that came into your life when you said yes to Jesus. Not a different Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit because there's only one Holy Spirit and there's only one calling and that one same Holy Spirit called each of us into the same thing, into a relationship with Jesus. Out of sin, 
into forgiveness. Out of spiritual death into spiritual life. Out of hell into heaven. Same experience, same call, same hope. One hope. I don't have a different hope than you have. You don't have a different hope than I have. We all have the same hope of forgiveness, of salvation, of heaven, of a relationship with Jesus Christ. One hope, one calling, one body, one spirit. And then he continues in verse 5, one Lord, just one Jesus, one faith, one belief, belief in the lordship of Jesus Christ, one faith. One baptism, whether he's talking about water baptism or the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happens when you get saved, I don't know. But in either case, it's just one. Just one. Verse 6, one God who is the one Father of everything and in everything and in all of us who are believers. And then what's interesting is he goes on in verses 7 and following the rest of that chapter to talk about how different we are. Just like last Sunday when we talked about we have different spiritual gifts and talents and skills and personalities and dispositions and all of that, he goes on to say we're different. This same Holy Spirit who called each of us into the same calling, the same hope, into the same body of believers has given us different gifts and different makeups. And even different ministry positions in the church because he talks about apostles and pastors and teachers and different ways of serving. And what he's saying is, yes, if you look around this room, we're not all the same. We look different. We have different experiences. We have different skill sets, different talents. But in that diversity, he said, there is a oneness. One God, one Father, one Spirit, one calling, one hope, one Lord, one body, one, one, one. And it's in that context that God says, when you accept my invitation to have a relationship with me, and you become part of my one body, my one family, my one faith, I expect you to treat the other people in that body the way I treat you. I expect you, he says, to work diligently at protecting, at preserving the unity of that body. Now Jesus said it a different way when he was meeting with his disciples just before he went back to The Father, he said, people will know you are my disciples by what? Hmm? By what? Your love for one another. The unity, the togetherness, the fellowship of the body. Now, if relationships are going to stick together, whether it's the home or the church, You have to have a bonding agent. I don't know if you use this or not, but I love Gorilla Glue. Any of y'all ever use Gorilla Glue? Do any carpentry or work around the house? Liquid nail. Works great. I've got stuff in our house I stuck together 20-some years ago with liquid nail. They're still stuck together. It works. And if you ever do any plumbing... PVC cement. When you put pipes together this, they don't ever come apart. Just got to cut it out, throw it away, and get new piping. This won't come apart. I mean, this stuff works, okay? So don't stick it on anything that you don't want it to stay stuck to. It 
works great. And God says in your relationships, you've got to have a bonding agent. You have to have something that makes it possible for relationships to stick, for unity to last, so that it doesn't just come apart when it gets hard. And he says that bonding agent, if you will, that causes things to stick together when it's easy and when it's tough as it can be is love. Love. Now, the problem is we don't understand love. But he said love, when properly understood, is like liquid nails. It's like PVC cement. It's like Gorilla Glue. It causes things to stick together, and you won't tear it apart. So look with me in Colossians chapter 3. He says in verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The bond, the bonding agent is love. <clears throat> but love is, love is a choice. See, in our culture, we talk about love as just a sentiment. But love is so much more than just an emotion, a feeling, a sentiment. Love is a choice. <coughs> that's the reason here he says put on it's like some clothing that you choose to get out of the closet and put on your body love you choose to wear you choose to put it on and in this chapter chapter 3 he's talking about the you before salvation and the you after salvation and he says the old you, the old person was pretty much like everybody else. And the time you live before Jesus is long enough. It's all the time you need to live like the flesh, to live like the world. You are now a new person. And you're to look like it, act like it, live like it, talk like it, make decisions like it. And therefore in verse 8 of chapter 3, he says you're to lay aside that old stuff, take off the old, the fleshly, the worldly, and put it aside. And then he defines what that old stuff is you're supposed to take off. In verse 8 he says it's things like anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, lying. Lay all that aside. And then in verse 10, put on the new self. Put on the new you. And he goes on to describe it. But notice what he says in verse 10. The new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. He said, as you put on this new you, this, these new clothes, if you will, you are going to increasingly look more like Jesus. Because the new you is made in his image. It's Christ's likeness. Do you know what spiritual growth is like? Do you know how you can tell if you're really growing spiritually? Spiritual growth is like buying a new outfit of clothing every week at the mall. Because every week you're going to look better than the week before. Every week you're going to look a little bit newer. Every week you're going to look sharper than you did the week before. Because it's not that, hey, I get saved and all of a sudden I become totally mature. 
And the new me is always shining through and the old me never messes up anything. It's always the new, improved, perfect me. You arrive. Now, listen, I'm to continue growing until the day I see Jesus. But here's the thing. When I'm growing spiritually, today, I don't look like I did last week. And next month, I'm not going to look like I look today. It's like I go to the store and buy a new outfit of clothing every week because every week I'm getting newer and newer and newer and better and better and better and more like Christ and more like Christ and more like Christ. Now, I'm not totally there, but I'm moving that direction. Being renewed in the image of Christ. And if today I still look like and think like and act like and talk like and make decisions like I did 10 years ago, I'm not growing. Here's the kicker. Putting on that new outfit today, if today's a hard day, is a choice. It's a choice in the hard day, put on the new clothes that looks like Jesus in relationships. Because when it's hard, you ever have one of those days you got out of bed and you just didn't want to do anything, you didn't want to clean up, you didn't want to comb your hair, you didn't want to put, you just felt miserable and you wanted to look miserable, right? And sometimes in relationships, it's just a mess and it's hard and I'm going to let it stay there. But love doesn't let you let it stay there. It's a choice to put on the new clothes, to lay aside the old and wear the new. And God says, because I know you struggle to understand what love is, I'm going to define it for you. Because in our American culture, we think love, as I said, is a sentiment, it's an emotion. Love is something we do because somebody's worthy of it, because they reciprocate, right? Because of how they make us feel. But God doesn't love you because you're worthy of it. God doesn't love you because of how you make him feel. God doesn't love you because you reciprocate it. The Bible says God loved you first. Right? God loves people who will never love him back. Love is a choice. It's not a sentiment. It's a choice. And he says... If you really want to know what love is, it is a choice to act in a certain way. To act in a certain way. And this way we act is contrary to our fleshly, sinful human nature. The oldest, fully intact human corpse ever discovered was located in 1991 when two German men were hiking in the Alps near the border of Italy and Austria. They found this human corpse that had been frozen in ice and was starting to thaw and part of it was exposed. Do you know how old that corpse is? Over 5,000 years. He's on display at a museum in Italy today. Scientists continued to study him. By the way, he had heart disease and artery disease before McDonald's. <laughs> but do you know how the oldest discovered fully intact corpse over 5,000 years old, do you know how he died? 
He was shot in the back with an arrow. How do we know that? The arrowhead was still found in his corpse. See, human nature is I'm going to get you. Human nature doesn't choose love. Human nature doesn't choose forgiveness. Human nature chooses self. But God says, because you're mine, you also have this new nature, this spiritual nature that's made like the like Jesus, your Savior. And because of that, you choose, even when it's hard, to be different, to act differently than the world, to act differently than your flesh pushes you to act. You choose to put on love. And he says it's not just a sentiment, it's it's behavior. And so he defines it. Look at verse 12. He said, you've been chosen, you're holy and beloved. He said, therefore, put on a heart of compassion. You choose to put on love, compassion that you feel in your gut. God says, I want you to feel stuff. And let compassion be the feeling that dominates you more than the other emotions that we experience as human beings. Compassion. Be a dominant emotion. And then he says, not only put on a heart of compassion, but in verse 10, kindness. Kindness. I mean, don't, don't use the excuse, that's just how I am, that's just how she is. To be a jerk. Be less of a jerk today than you were a year ago, okay? Learn to be kind. Choose kindness. And then he says, not only choose kindness, but humility. Humility is a, a way of thinking that says, I'm not better than everybody else. I'm not above everybody else. That, that puts yourself ahead of everybody else. He says, not only choose humility, but choose gentleness. That's how you respond to people. Choose gentleness and patience. Wow. Wouldn't that make a difference? Love means I choose patience. Not easy, especially in certain situations. But love says I'm going to do my best with the help of God to choose patience. And then verse 13, bearing with one another putting up with one another. One translation says accepting one another. If any has a complaint against anyone. You you ever got a complaint against anybody? Has the person sitting beside you ever irritated you? Well, they're going to do it again. I just, you know, they just will. It's just life. And he says when it happens, you choose love, and that means you choose forgiveness, and you choose accepting that person. Why? Well, that's what the Lord did for you. Just as You forgive them just as the Lord forgave you, he says. And being all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. See, love in your family, love in your Sunday school class, love with your friends, love in the church is not just an emotion. Love is a choice to act this way. And if you're going to have unity, you're going to have relationships that last, that that are stuck together, it takes making those kind of practical 
choices of behavior because that's what love is. Easy? No, I don't think it was easy for Jesus to go to the cross. I think you and I are so familiar with his story that we underestimate the trauma he experienced in choosing to go to the cross. Wasn't easy. Love is not always easy. That, that's why if you think it's always going to be easy, you're never going to have a marriage that lasts. If you think it's got to be easy, you're never going to stick with any church because love is not always easy. It has those moments when it is as hard as anything you will ever do. But when you do it, it's always worth it. Now look at Ephesians 4. Very, very similar passage. He starts out in chapter 4 in verse 1, Ephesians chapter 4, by saying, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have called. You've been called into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Live like it. Then verse 2, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Sounds just like the Colossians passage, doesn't it? Because love, when you get right down to it, this is what love is. You remember that famous passage, 1 Corinthians 13, people like to read at weddings, love is? Love is patient, love is kind, doesn't keep a record of wrongs, all those kind of things. See, the Bible seldom defines love in terms of emotions and sentiment. The Bible tends to define love in terms of behavior and choices, speech and attitude. Because love is not seen in how you feel, it's seen in what you do. And yes, I'm a 56-year-old man who loves and has been loved and struggled and had people struggle with me, but I've learned that, yes, love has emotions, and emotions motivate us. I get that. I love my wife, and there's a lot of emotions in that, and that motivates me. But I've lived long enough and been in relationship long enough that I've also discovered that what the Bible says is true, that the choices you make in terms of behavior end up affecting your emotions. And if you don't learn to act loving, eventually you won't ever feel loving. Love is a choice to act and treat people the right way. And it will affect your emotions. Now, let's wrap this up. He says, showing tolerance for one another in love. One translation is making allowance for others' faults. Because none of us are perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And if you're not allowing other people to make mistakes and be imperfect, you're going to live alone. You're never going to have a church family. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Working hard at protecting togetherness, unity, fellowship, here in the church, but it applies to other things as well. Well, we don't always make that choice. Earlier this week, I was eating lunch one day at, uh, at a local restaurant, one of my meeting threes, and um, I noticed on the other end of the restaurant this older lady with an, with an adult son eating together at a booth, and they finished their meal and got up to leave, and stopped at another booth where they were talking to people I assume were friends. They were about three or four tables away from me, so it's not like I was sitting right beside them, three or four tables away, but I heard everything she said. And so this lady walked over to her friend, and she was standing there at this restaurant, and she was telling her friend 
about an experience she'd recently had at a local church. She'd gone to some gathering at that church. It wasn't a Sunday morning worship service, but one of these meetings, whether it was a support group or whatever, where they have, um, you know, tables and food and all of that. And you come in, they said, just find a seat. And she went over and sat down at this particular table. And after she'd been sitting there for a little while, another lady came over to her and said, you can't sit there. That's my table. My friends and I have been sitting at that table for years. You can't sit there. And so she's telling this person in the restaurant about that experience, and she said, I'm never going back to that church again. Well, I get that. I understand that. And I think you're with me that the lady at the church who walked over to her and said, you can't sit there. That's my table. My friends and I have been sitting there forever. That lady was wrong, right? I mean, it's just, that's just selfish. That's thinking about nobody but yourself. That lady was wrong, and nobody can argue in any way she was in any way right in acting like a Christian when she did that. And she hurt that person, and she hurt that church, and she hurt the kingdom of God, right? But I have to tell you, the lady who was talking in the restaurant that I overheard four tables away, she was also wrong. And she may have done more damage. Why do I say that? Well, we're in a public restaurant. I'm seated four tables away. And I'm hearing her run down the church, run down God's people. And I'm not the only one hearing her because anybody else within half of that restaurant could hear her. And I don't know if everybody else in that restaurant was a Christian. I don't know if they all were mature believers and that would not cause them to struggle. I don't know if there were lost people listening to that thinking, well, I'm never going to church. Listen to them old Christians, how they run. Why would I want anything? She was damaging the kingdom of God. She was damaging the body of Christ. She was damaging the Christian faith. She was damaging the witness of Jesus Christ. She was sinning. Listen, the biblical definition of gossip is not simply spreading something that's a lie. You gossip even when you tell the truth if it's running down other people. See, God's definition, God's standard is a lot higher than the world's. And God says, rather going out and venting all your emotions and your flesh, endeavor as imperfect as we are, to protect the unity of the church. Now, let's be honest. We all mess up and fail to do that at times, right? I have, you have, we all do. But because we're growing, we need to be doing it less today than we did it last year. And we need to be more conscious of protecting the integrity and the unity and the fellowship and the witness of the church today than we were conscious of it a decade ago. See, there's something to be said for maturing, for growing up, and realizing that you and I in this world, as followers of Christ, it's not just about me. It's not just about what I'm getting out of this thing. It's about this bigger purpose of the kingdom of God. It's about the witness of Jesus Christ. It's about other people. It's not just about me. The truth is, it has never been just about me.
God loves me, but God loves this world. So protect the unity of the church. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And so the deacons and so on who are prepared or to go to the back now and get ready, we're going to serve the Lord's Supper here in just a second. And then after that, we're going to have some praying at the altar. But I want you to think about something because the Lord's Supper is something Jesus gave us, an ordinance that he said we're to do. And when we do it, we remember him. We remember his love. We remember his sacrifice. We remember that Jesus said, I love you so much, I'm not going to let what you've done stand in the way of my having a relationship with you. I love you so much that I'm going to take the initiative and offer you forgiveness, offer you a relationship, and all you have to do is say yes. And every time you take the Lord's Supper, he says, now I want you to examine yourself and your life, your walk with me. And that means you need to look at your relationship with the church, with God's people. And this may be a time you need to confess some things, deal with some things. So as the deacons begin serving, we're going to put some Bible verses on the screen. And I'm going to ask you to read this and and, and just pray. So the elements are being served. You, you hold them until everyone's been served and we'll take them together. We're going to spend a few moments just seeking God in response to this message, in response to his word. So guys, go ahead and begin serving. And look at that verse. Jesus said, the greatest love is to give your life for someone else. And referring to himself, he said, nobody takes my life from me. It's my own initiative, my own choice to give it for you. Would you take a moment, pray, And thank Jesus for loving you so much that he took the initiative and died for you. Just take a moment and thank him for that. Thank him for loving you that much. And then the next verse, the Bible tells us that Jesus did not purchase our forgiveness by writing a check. He didn't donate some stocks. He didn't sell some property. Jesus purchased our forgiveness. He redeemed us with the most precious thing he had, his blood. He gave the thing that mattered most to him, his life. Thank him for that. And I want you to think about what matters to you, what's precious to you. And are there things in your life more precious than Jesus? Things so precious to you that they get in the way of your relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus did not allow the most precious thing in his life to get in the way of his relationship with you. He said, that's how valuable you are to me. Because we all mess up, we all sin, we all come short, we have this promise from God that if we acknowledge our sin and confess it, we're honest about it, He cleanses, He forgives completely.
completely. Aren't you thankful? Thank Jesus for forgiving you. And right now, take a moment and confess any specific sin the Holy Spirit has brought to your attention. Confess it to Him right now before you take the supper.